This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 465 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Harry Moffitt. Now, this is an incredibly poignant time to post an episode like this because I am putting it out on Memorial Day. And Harry has an incredibly powerful story working in special forces in Australia. And as part of his story, he will talk about losing one of his own friends. So there's no more powerful time to put out an episode like this than today. So we discuss a host of topics from his deployments, his training, mental health, but also cricket. So Harry ended up taking a cricket bat around the world on all his deployments and found that that one game unified, whether it was the soldiers he was fighting alongside, whether it was warlords that were battling each other. So an incredibly interesting parallel to his story. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more visible, easier to find for other people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, of men and women from all over the globe. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Harry Moffitt. Enjoy.
Well, Harry, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the, the podcast today. No worries, James. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And it was Dan that connected us, that right, Dan Pronk? It was, mate, yeah. yeah so yeah. I want to say thank you to him as well. Another amazing human being. Yeah, he's a good bloke, Dan. Uh, we go back away, a and his brother as well. They're both overachieving, Dan and uh, Ben, individuals. Absolutely. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So uh, I'm in Melbourne. We're just coming out of a, a, a massive lockdown here in COVID, as, as you probably know. We had um, we had uh, about six months straight of it last year, approximately, and uh, things have just freed up for summer. So uh, it's nice. Melbourne feels alive again. It's good. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm just seeing now people posting about going to football games, you know, hopefully for you, cricket matches, all those those areas. So I think, you know, People have done exactly what was asked of them. Some people are pro yeah. anti-vaccination, but whatever their choice, I think overall it's going to help. Medicine's definitely uh, created some great therapies now. So I hope this is the last time we're asked to not live anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and uh, Melbourne's done really well. We've, we've, um, but uh, hopefully the worst is behind here in Australia. We're a bit luckier than most. Brilliant. So chronologically, starting at the very beginning, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, sure. So uh, born in Melbourne, proud um, Melbourne boy, James, uh, back in uh, in 1968, which is black and white now, black and white times, uh, born to a uh, naval sailor, a sailor uh, with the Royal Australian Navy and my mother was a nurse. Um and uh, yeah, pretty humble beginnings. We weren't, uh, we, we were, I would say, pretty poor. My father, even though he was in the Navy in those days, had a second job uh, and mum had a, a couple of jobs as well. Uh, three boys, one of three boys, Robert and Paul, my brothers. And uh, yeah, I, I guess our life was characterised by uh, packing up and moving every two years because dad was in the, in the Navy. So uh, he'd have a posting to Sydney, Perth, you know, Queens, all over Australia, and um, and he spent a lot away, a lot of time away, in uh, in Vietnam as well. I think he did um, ten, uh, seven trips to Vietnam on the what they called the Vung Tau ferry, which was either the the Melbourne or the Sydney aircraft carrier, and that was just transporting troops and equipment back and forth to Vietnam. So I suppose up until you know ten years old. That was kind of our life, moving around Australia, waiting for Dad to come home, and um, and Mum really a, an absolute saint uh, and a tenacious, determined woman. Um, raised three pretty rogue boys uh, to be quite decent gentlemen, I hope. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, you ended up obviously having a full career in the military. When you look back now, um, especially with you going into the psychology arena. What were some of the things that you identified in your dad as far as how he dealt with what he did and saw? Because, I mean, that that era, I think, is known to be the one that didn't have the ticker tape parade when they came back. Yeah, that's certainly true. And uh, Vietnam really was a, was a controversial war, wasn't it, in, in so many respects, depending on your, your, which, uh, which, view you, which lens you viewed it through. Uh, dad, I, I, you know, my kind of, I suppose, macro... Um, observations or reflections on dad. Uh, he was pretty professional. He loved the Navy. He was passionate about it. He was uh, he was always, you know, well kept or well kept kept, as they say. Uh, he was 
you know, always had a, a um, very proud of his uniform. Um, spent a lot of time with him on the ships and on base, military bases. Uh, we all did. Um, but he was also he also knew how to relax too. You know, he he was always playing sport um, outside of the military. Had good connect into the civilian world, which I is one of my lasting. Um, I suppose lessons learned that I share with young men and women now is make sure you're connected outside of your role. Uh, you, you can, it can, um, your whole identity can is in danger of being wrapped up in one one role. And I think my dad, uh, kind of unwittingly, and I didn't even realise it at the time, role modelled that, um, making sure he had good connecting to the civilian world. Um, and look, my dad was a, a disciplinarian. There's no doubt about it. He was, an, uh, uh, but but in a very you know, intelligent way. He was a, a thinking man. Um, so he uh, he he had good control over us boys. But I, I you know, people ask me, oh, it must have been hard having your father away for months at a time. Um, but I I don't remember kind of missing him as much as I was proud of him. You know, so I, I kind of take comfort in the time I spent away from my kids. Uh, you know, although you you, you you lament the lost time, I hope they they were proud and understood and can reconcile um, why and 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 the time away. Um, but uh, but Dad was a good man. I've I've, uh, I've taken a lot from him, including his his personal values and his uh, you know even his politics, which is very moderate and kind of he tends to rise above the the din of rubbish politics and uh, look at the world with a with a quite a broad lens and I, I'm thankful for that. Sounds terrible. Pick a side. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is. <laughs> Pick a side's just rubbish. You know? it's, well, humans are just far too complex to have a linear left and right or up and down or anything like that and i think it's it's kind of slightly unintelligent to to look at them you know look at life through that lens absolutely absolutely well um you mentioned about him having sports as an outlet too so tell me about your dad's influence on cricket which is obviously going to be a strong theme in your story yeah well it's it's a very strong theme in the book and um uh it's been a huge part of our life i guess you know, I played a little bit of uh, you know, cricket proper, team cricket with dad here and there. Um, but really for us, it was about the backyard cricket. It was the informal games, um, you know, fond, fond memories of the four of us, um, my, my three brothers and dad playing cricket in the backyard for hours and hours on end um, in the drive driveways, uh, on the sides of roads, we'd play cricket on, uh, on the breakfast table with a, with a ruler and a, and a screwed up piece of paper, you know, and, uh, if you hit it off the, off the table, you were out and, you know, we had it down to a final. We play hallway cricket with Nerf balls and plastic bats and, and, um, dad, dad had a, a, a brilliant sense of humor uh, very dry sense of humour, and he, he would always bring that into the games of cricket that we'd play, you know, with his sledging. Again, just a, a thinking man, um, you know, very intelligent sledges. Always, always kind of remind us: you don't sledge the man, you sledge the bat or the ball, and uh, and then hide the the sledge of the person inside that. So it was mostly backyard cricket, James, that um, that we kind of coalesced around, I guess. And uh, I learnt a lot about uh, a lot about sport. Full stop from the old man uh, in the backyard. Uh, we, you know, in Australia, we're very lucky, particularly growing up in the 
the 70s and 80s, uh, our blocks of land are quite large, so there's plenty of room out the back to um, to kick the footy and and um, and play cricket. But one one thing that kind of uh, one, whilst I was re- writing the book, one thing that kind of came back to me that I reflected on when I grew up, there was kids everywhere playing cricket. They're out on the street, dodging traffic. They're in the park. So I remember you could hear games of cricket going on around you in the just in the daily you don't hear that anymore and um, recently at boxing day uh, here in melbourne we played some cricket out on the on the front uh, out on the street out the front and uh, people were angry as i coming past in the car that we were blocking off the road you know i thought how you know, what have we come to you can't just kind of hit a bat and ball around on a suburban street without pissing someone off it's uh it's we, what does that say? You know, I'd like to see more kids. I'd like to see the kids seize the streets back and uh, block off roads and play cricket and kick the footy. Absolutely, I think it was in England I shared. It was a while ago now, a video, but the the neighbours have kind of done that in this UK street where they basically had. I think they were like mobile barriers, and between yeah. certain hours, they block off the whole street and have street sports. You know, and I think that yeah. you, you look about the the old um. They call block parties here in the US. I mean, that was a community tribal thing that people did. And this last year, I think, has really pushed against that. So I think that's something that we, we all need to refine. Yeah, definitely, mate. I, I agree with that. No, I'd love to see the kids out in the street playing. And, and, and I, I, uh, I, I touch on it in the book, but when, when we were growing up, and moving from you know navy village to navy village to navy village, I, I, you know seriously, we went to uh, nine or ten different homes over our schooling period. And um, as soon as you get there, you break out a game of cricket on the street, and kids just converge, you know, even just to look and sit off the side and play. It was just such a great way to break the ice and get to know kids. When I look back, you don't you don't think about that at the time, you know. You just think of all you want to do is get in a bat, you know. <laughs> you don't care whatever you've got to do. But um, I even have a sense. I even had a sense then of the you know the inclusive nature of cricket, and, and it's one of the one of the every sport has unique nuance and characteristics. But um, cr- that's one of crickets. Uh, you know, everyone gets a bat, everyone gets a bowl, everyone gets a field. There's kind of an order that kind of emerges out of the chaos. Um, there's rules and fairness, you know, so you can't get out first ball, one hand, one bounce for people who may not be as skillful. So I, I just, I, uh, I love that about that informal part of the game. Now, with you bouncing around, I'm always kind of curious to the the more um, gypsy-like family upbringings that some, especially in the military, yeah. have. Um, yeah. When you look back now, how much of the skills that you learned as a child carried on as you entered the military yeah I, I think one big thing that i reflect on now and again you know you've got to reconstruct the past and we do anyway as humans to to kind of understand it and make sense of it but i'm 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 very sure that that uh, I, I built some resilience in terms of um you know building relationships you know understanding that not everybody gets along that we you know our personalities sometimes conflict or sometimes they gel and i never took things personally i've learned not to take things personally if people don't like you or agree with you or whatever and I, I, I think that's one thing i learned early because we were leaving friends then moving to next having to make friends in sydney and then we'd leave sydney two years later and have to come to melbourne and make completely new friends again so i think it gives you an ability or i think it it, it's developed an ability in me at least and my brothers are the same um we we uh easily socialize we don't take 
things personally in terms of um, people, you know, not getting on with people. Um, so there's there's a social element to that. Um, I think it also um, developed in us, if we didn't already have it, this uh, you know, a, a, a comfort with our own company and being able to distract ourselves, you know, and, and, and the three of us became very close around cricket and sport and things like that, um, but very satisfied and very happy in um, being solo, being by yourself and, and, and keeping yourself occupied. And I think that played into things like reading and and schoolwork. We were we were reasonable at school, um, uh, but uh, yeah, there's there's there's. Uh, I think we were lucky in as much as we were always in or around navy villages or navy um, kind of communities, and there were lots of kids everywhere. So we we were never short, and they were in the same boat as us to a large extent. But um, yeah, growing up, yeah, just sport and uh, and you know, I suppose you know this kind of gypsy as you put transition life. It's it's a good way to explain it. Beautiful, yeah. I mean, I love I love these early life questions because you can see how it kind of you know domino effects into later life. Now, with you being surrounded by Navy specifically, when you were at school age, was your goal always to enter the military, or did you have something in mind and, and excuse me, something else in mind initially? Yeah, look, I, I always say that I wanted to. I always saw myself, you know, sprinting out of full forward for the Hawthorne Football Club, taking screamers and and playing in a grand final as all kids, or opening the cricket for uh, for the Australian cricket side. Um, although I'm a terrible bat, actually, my book, which is you know, which you know, is called Eleven Bats. My cricket mates reckon I should have called it Bats Eleven because uh, I'm such a terrible <laughs> bat. Um, sport dominated my life until until 1980 when um, uh, the, I suppose, special ops or special forces burst onto the world stage for the first time for everyone to see, and that was at the uh, the Iranian uh, hostage um, uh, siege in, in Princess Gate in, uh, in London. And, uh, you know, a bunch of bad guys had taken a few dozen hostages at the Iranian embassy and... I'm not. I don't know if you remember it, uh, James, but the image is is well known now. It's of the 22 SAS, the English SAS, UK SAS, uh, bursting and blowing their way in, you know, from explosions and roping off the roof into the the um, the embassy, and that that image welded onto my mind. I was 12 years old. Uh, it was on black and white telly on our little kind of telly in the corner. Uh, it was on the front page of the Sun. Um, and this this image, uh, iconic now, just uh, you know, as I said, welded onto my brain. And it kind of at the time I didn't know what was going on, but it, it intrigued me, and it set on set on set me on a path of again reading about special forces, and that world just started to open up for me at twelve. And I think from from twelve, I, I had no real understanding of w- wanting to join the military prior to that, or I don't I don't I don't remember that. But from that point onwards, I think that was it. I, I dreamed about what it could be. I dreamed about the stories of the British SAS in North Africa and, and um, you know, this evocative stories of, 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 uh, of missions and parachuting and nighttime operations. Um, and just as I, as I started to read about, you know, the US and Israeli special forces and European special forces and all the rest, uh, it, it slowly you know, coalesced in my mind that um, that was something that I really wanted to give a nudge and see if I was if I was up for it. 
Yeah, I remember that. I was only six when that happened, but um, I don't know if the Aussie TV was the same, but when we were young, we had like John Craven's News Rounds, so like a kid's version of the BBC News. And I remember that. I remember um, Yvonne Fletcher being killed in one of the, uh, I think it was a different siege, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, th- those were big events in, in a young child's mind. And I don't think any of us had really seen anything like that before. You know, we knew what we knew what soldiers looked like, but that was a different kind of soldier. It was. And it, and and until that point, um, you know, special forces really were the thing, you know, were, were a capability that all militaries raised for a short period of time to react to a certain problem. And then they'd be disbanded. And, and all through history, you know, that you could go right back to the Greeks, um, these it was well known that special forces raise them. They're rogue. They're a bit different. They think outside the box. They operate. You know, the, the skirmishes of the Civil War are a great example for in the U.S. Um, but then they're disbanded and, and diluted. And and I suppose 22 had just been re-raised only a, a decade or so before this time, and uh, uh, and or a couple of a few decades beforehand. And they were the first standing kind of special forces. Yeah, around that time too, you, it was just a giddy time for special ops. You had, you know, Antebi, uh, Munich, and um, uh, you know the the GSG and GNG out of Europe, France, and uh, Germany and France respectively, operating and resolving hostage situations. You had the Desert Eagle, uh, U.S. failed uh, rescue of the um, uh, of the U.S. Uh, students in Iran, in Tehran, I think it was. So, you know, the whole world, Israeli special forces were, were kicking about and um, it was, uh, for, for a young man of 12, there, there were tonnes of books, but nothing nothing on Australian special forces. And I, I kind of around that time realised, oh, the SAS is in Australia as well, you know. So uh, I didn't even realise to that time. And, and part of writing the book really came out of that because I was so starved of Australian SAS or special forces stories and we'd been in Vietnam and done a, a pretty amazing job we really earned our our stripes in Vietnam as you know being coined the phantoms of the jungle um, there wasn't anything around so it, it's one of the things that kind of got me across the line to write the book because you know I had sleepless nights about writing the book you don't come out of the SAS and write a book about it it's kind of not the done thing and I thought well, you know I'll, I'll be pilloried and uh, and all the rest of it but I was driven by and and I've been validated. I've had a lot of feedback from young men and women saying, you know, thanks for writing the book. There's not much out there. And I think um, it's been a, a good exercise like that. So, uh, yeah, it's inspired by that 1980 grainy vi- uh, vision of uh, 22 bursting into Prince, you know, into the Iranian embassy. Yeah, no, and I think what I found now, because I've had a lot of people from the special operations community, um, what – if if it's framed, and I heard you talking to um to Gaz about this on on his podcast, if it's framed in kind of a narcissistic, this is what I did, beating my chest type of element, then I can see why people would have issues with it. But what's what I've seen is a lot of great biographies with a lot of lessons learned on leadership, on strength and conditioning, on on you know psychology, and that then pays it forward to all these other people and all these other professions that can learn from an elite operator that was at the pinnacle of their craft. So I think. You know, when when it's in that group of books, it's invaluable, and you don't know the the young men and women that you're inspiring with your story. Yeah, hope, hopefully so. And then certainly, yeah, we, we were very careful not to make it a tell-all. 
you know, and, and the last thing you want to do is be, you know, whinging and complaining because that's not what life's about. And I mean, if people choose to whinge and complain, then I guess that's an insight into into them, you know. But, uh, yeah, I'd say if it's a good – look, at the end of the day, it's just a bloke, a bunch of bats and a few beers and a, and a few yarns, and I, and I hope that's a nice, relaxed um, way it comes across. Yeah, no, it does. It was great. So let's kind of walk through your, your entry into – the military in general and then and then special operations so you again achieved a high level mentally and physically so what did you do when you start on that track to prepare yourself for that journey and then kind of walk me through that journey itself yeah so i was lucky enough james to have a, a kind of a, a foundation of decent uh fitness um so yeah, I was very sporty and, and, and did a lot of athletics and football and cricket etc where we talked about but I guess when I joined the the army uh, in uh, in 1986, or joined the joined the army regular army in 1986, I went off to Kapuka to basic training. It was the first time I felt competent in my life. It was it was you know I actually really enjoyed, really embraced the military lifestyle, the, the, the training, the bushcraft. I loved being out bush and sleeping in the bush. And um, and kind of felt <clears throat> very comfortable and at ease with, uh, with you know as I said from a competence level, and my confidence grew. But I I, I always had in the back of my mind um, what did I need to do for training? And I picked up some books. You know, there's a guy named Percy Serity that uh, was just kind of I didn't know who he was, and I've I've actually named my business my company after one of his philosophies. Uh, one of the great trainers back in the 50s and 60s uh, trained some of the the greatest athletes on the planet to, to Olympics and, um, and other sports in the Olympics and other sports and just had a sense of I needed to get into a gym somewhere, uh, do some running and, and apply some kind of programmatic or program um, kind of mindset to it. And, uh, yeah, that was that was it. I was pretty much self-directed uh, apart from a few PTIs that I met and in the military uh, yeah, there's gyms everywhere. So uh, right through from joining through Kapuka basic training, through employment training, through to my first posting to North Queensland, uh, into the jungle, which was which was fortuitous. Uh, I I had a basic physical training program. I also understood that uh, you know through different mentors that there was this kind of psychological or mental part to it. But to be honest, I had no clue, and I'm not sure anyone else did really what that meant. Um, probably what psychology or the mental aspect of of um, selection in that domain in those days, what that probably meant was: do you have the, the the personality? Do you have the kind of motivation and the ticker or the character? And I'm not sure that there was any kind of descriptors or category categories around that. It was all, you know, are you a good bloke? Are you tough enough? Can you survive? Um, you know, can you get on with people? That was probably not too much further from that. And it hadn't advanced anything. Uh, the military kind of set up this selection, you know, the selection of human beings back in the uh, World War One and World War Two when they were trying to filter in and out people who were suitable for service. And it hadn't really advanced too much beyond what we now know as the the selection of men. I think the the, the book was called. It was a, a kind of a bit of a more a, a hybrid of some German and some English and US research, and it was pretty much based on personality. However, you know, I was speaking to people. I I, I kind of had a a, a 
and understanding that um, when things get tough, uh, that you know there's there's rudimentary tools that some of us bring organically to thinking that we already have that that other people don't have and 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 have to learn. And um, those things started to evolve as I went through my training program um, and uh, and had my mind set on on the SAS. And that's uh, I suppose from eighty six to ninety, I was in the gym reading books, uh, thinking a lot about thinking, um, although very clumsily uh, and not with any great guidance. A few books around there. Percy Serity again talked a lot about mental preparation. Um, and I feel I feel like when I hit selection in 1990, at, uh, 20, I was 21, that I was pretty prepared. I felt pretty confident. I felt um, competent and confident, not overly so, but uh, but I, I felt like I could give it, I was in the right, it was in the pocket and I could give it a, a real dip, you know. Now, do you think being deployed up in Queensland with, you know, the humidity and basically everything that moves can kill you added to that kind of, um, you know, the the area of being out of your comfort zone therefore set you up mentally and physically as well? Yeah, 100%. And uh, the I spent... It, it, the Townsville uh, brigade up there is is very exercise and operationally focused. So we spent a lot of time in the bush. I remember I'd go out with um, with one unit. Uh, I was in a detachment of communications. That's what I entered in first. They put me into communications, doing Morse and languages and all this type of stuff. And you'd be attached to battalions, and I'd be attached to one company. Um, they'd come be coming back from a four week exercise or a two week exercise. I'd be I'd ask to be dropped off on the at the roadhouse on on the way through, and then I'd pick up with the company coming through, going out for another two weeks. And I love being out bush, uh, and also the jungle warfare training centre up there uh, really, uh, you know, was 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 a key moment for me. I spent months up there in the jungle, you know, just, uh, living and training with uh, either playing enemy for, for other units or, you know, being those units and, and doing the jungle warfare training. And, again, I just felt comfortable and, um, you know, city boy, but uh, that that prepared me really well because the SAS was, you know, ostensibly a, a, a desert and a jungle um, unit. And so I, I came, again, I felt, uh, you know, well prepared and and you've got to you develop uh, mental resilience pretty quickly in the jungle. It's uh, it's tough. Anyone who's done time off tracks in thick, uh, hilly um, jungle, uh, it's uh, it's character building. That's for sure. You you're never dry. It's always raining. Um, you know you it's it's uh, it's tough work. Some days you, you you can take eight hours to go five hundred meters. You know. It's crazy. Well, one of the things that's very interesting to me as well is someone whose career has spanned either side of 9-11. So how well, you know, what were some of the, the best things about training in what was, you know, some would term a kind of peacetime at that point um, that were that were able to kind of predict and, and carry on training you, even though there wasn't a specific battleground at that point, like we had obviously urban combat when, when the Middle East kicked off. Because one of the issues I see in the fire service in some places that I've worked is the kind of, oh, well, it's never happened, so it won't happen kind of thing versus, well, it's if it hasn't happened, then there's a higher chance that it's going to happen. So how did they prepare you for different, you know, battle arenas, even if there wasn't a war raging by that point? 
Yeah, I'll look, just before I answer that, I, I, yeah, I like that idea. I, I get that idea about, you know, in the fire services and other other emergency services that we that we work with, I work with in other guises, uh, you know, what, what, what is the thing that's uh, you're not prepared for you know, and how do you train for those things? And I think you learn more from exploring those those ideas and maybe training for really far out, um, you know, un, un, you know, not unknowable things, but but uh, but some crazy different approaches to training and different things you might need to react for in the future. Um, and I think special ops can can do that pretty well, I think, for the most part. But, but there's been some lessons learned. Um, when I when I you know the pre kind of September 11 life in the Australian military was all exercises. We we were probably one of the best armies in the world at exercises because we did so much of it and large scale stuff across the whole top of Australia. The kangaroo exercises. We invited countries from all over the world and had these massive exercises and did it very well. And high risk, um, uh, it's high risk activities, you know, and few deaths, few injuries, et cetera, and, and kind of edgy stuff. But no one was going on ops and it was bloody frustrating for all of us. You know, we were training for counterterrorism and, and, and our, our normal roles and other things and not going anywhere. So it was, it was pretty, pretty frustrating in those days. And a lot of guys from the unit were discharged uh, in the late 90s. Um, and I think that was a lot to do with it. There was a couple of gigs in Somalia and North Africa and the Middle East, but generally Australia was not being deployed with the coalition forces. So uh, it was pretty pretty hard to keep up morale when you kind of benched the whole time. You know, you want to get out on the on the park and play. Um, but obviously, in uh, in 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 two thousand and one, September eleven, I was actually in the UK at the time. Um, things changed, and it was it was on like Donkey Kong. After that, uh, it, there was just a revolving door of operations, and and um, that's where the eleven bats comes from. Um, you know, eleven deployments in in eleven years. Uh, so you know, it, it went from kind of standing start to to flat out uh, for for that period and kind of I look back now on that time to, to you know 2001 to to through 2012 uh, 13 uh, just kind of flew by when I kind of think back about it yeah well looking at the timeline of you know your deployments obviously you you guys were out there pretty early and some of the the operators have had on that kind of signed up right around 9/11 or hit right when they went to boot camp they still had several years of training before they finally went out east that's fine so one thing that i always like to ask people and I'll, I'll preface this with an explanation when you are a civilian in whatever part of the world you are we tend to get a very polarized um you know story reporting of war you either get the you know i always use the same phrase you know kill them all let god sort them out you know um armageddon style reporting or the baby killer version so I like to get, you know, the, the, the perspective from the young man or young woman that was sent to another country to, you know, do what was asked of them. So we had all that training. Um, you know, a lot of it was still in Australia itself. Were there any moments when you deployed where you saw some of the horror yourself? And again, I remind people, this is the people that are victims in these countries are usually the, the residents of these countries, the Iraqis, the Afghanis. Yeah. Um, so, but the, so, so often there's kind of like a, 
the politics sent you there initially, but then as a justification when you see with your own eyes. So, you know, without asking for too much detail, but were there any kind of specific events where you realize, all right, no matter what the reason, I'm here now to stop these shit bags from doing these things to these people? Yeah, it is, a, it's a, a, a massive area and it's something I'm quite passionate about and that's kind of working in the philosophy, ethical morality of war and I think we could do a lot better in training our militaries rather than just a PowerPoint presentation of rules of engagement and laws of armed conflict and ethical triangulation, which all three mean little or nothing to a young recruit coming through or not not they don't mean nothing but it just doesn't stick you know and i think there's a much deeper conversation you're alluding to you know look i i you know notwithstanding just war tradition and just war theories and and all the rest of it that uh, to seek to justify war you know as far as my personal opinion is war is you know and and combat is an entirely unethical pursuit it's it, it's uh it's but it, it has you know means and ends and justifications that we rebuild or or or, or uh, put over it just to to kind of you know reconcile it in our own minds and also reconcile the fact that there's there are bad people who want to do bad things and they, they have to be stopped uh, that's just a fact and like we can't avoid that and our best way to do that is to meet uh, brutality with brutality. So there is a lot of questions in your mind about, you know, what am I doing? Is this a good fight? Is it the good fight? You know, for example, when we went into uh, Iraq in uh, 2003, and in, I, I spent a lot of time in Baghdad uh, over two deployments um, and around around the country, yeah, you know, I, I was conflicted because you know the the one of the authorities in the in, in the world is saying you know that there's no mass, weapons of mass destruction and there's a there's there's a side there, but then you've got this criminal family, the the Husseins, who are just appalling human beings, you know, using chemical weapons on their own people and and some of the appalling things that uh, Uday and I think Uzay or whatever the the sons of Saddam uh, were 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 um, we're, we're, we're carrying out on on their popular local population, so there is a real conflict there. And so, in, in to get to your question, mate, in, you, when you're back in Australia, uh, you all you want to do is is go to a war. Uh, so you, you're compelled by your own kind of ego and drive to to want to be involved. Uh, as time as I went on more deployments, that outlook I hope or think matured. And it turned more to reconcile in my mind that if even if I don't agree, if my mates are going and my country's asking me to do it, I'm I'm up for that. Uh, and um, but ultimately, I'll travel anywhere, anytime right now to protect vulnerable people. And one thing I do see overseas is the impacts of bad people on vulnerable civilians. And I'm happy to travel to any inch square inch of the planet to to defend those who can't defend themselves. When I when I was growing up and travelling around the world, one of the travelling around Australia with my father and family, um, one of the one of the vulnerabilities that that creates if you don't have a solid community and a and a, and a hometown. I don't have a hometown. I just feel like a citizen of the world. I don't. I, I can't call Williamstown where I was born home. I can't call Perth home. I can't call or whatever. And one of the vulnerabilities of that is you you are open to bullying because you're the outsider all the time. 
And I was bullied terribly growing up um, uh, and uh, just because I was an outsider and I have a, an absolute um, allergic reaction to thugs, bullies, assholes in the office, uh, you know, pricks on the teams. I, I can't stand them uh, uh, because they're, they're, they are the reason why we all don't get along together. And they're on all sides of politics, these these turds in the punch bowl, you know. So deep inside of me is this burning desire, James, to seek out assholes and bring them to account, you know. And um, I think that will always carry me and my sense of service forward. And it's why I've got what's why I'm such a massive fan of fire, police, medicine, para paramedicine. Um, and military now, I feel like I want to give back more than ever because I I really get that sense of service. It's such a it's such a wonderful thing, and we need we need uh, we need to foster that. Well, that's an interesting kind of tangent as well because I mean, thank you for that, and you know that's that's something I hear over and over and over again, and I hundred percent agree. I've never served in the military, but that bully element. I, I fucking hate it, you know. And what really blows me away, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if you've seen it differently through your lens is it seems like the bullies are usually a very small group of people, but they seem to be able to influence more and then lean them towards their way of thinking, whether it's, you know, the being part of the the terrorist push or, you know, part of the, you know, the extreme right or the extreme left that we've seen this last year here in the U.S., is that something that you've seen that that overall people are good, but for some reason these bullies seem to gain traction by, by I guess just by having the loudest voice? Yeah, I think so. And also, you know, they recruit. Uh, you know, in, in instances of militaries, they recruit like-minded people, and they have a have a will and a desire to inflict. You know. Um, whether it's physical or psychological punishment, or or or, uh, or, or you know, uh, you know, hurt, whether they desire to hurt people or or lift themselves based on beating down others, you know, and the extremes of that, of course, are things like ISIS. Uh, I think you know, in terms of a modern example, writ large, uh, some of the disgusting abhorrent activities they carried out it's just they're, they're inhuman is, is all i can say and um, i'm happy to go and meet those those assholes anywhere anytime you know on their own crown of their own choosing i don't care i'll back myself in and back my mates in i'm sure most people would uh when you see what uh, what they've done and look on a, on a you know i see it i don't see isis in business but you see people in business where their egos just outstrip themselves they're they're, they're kind of they extend beyond their own kind of understanding of of who they are i think they you kind of feel a little sorry for them but you see them often and um yeah i i, I seek to engage those individuals as well and, and hold them to account more and more i think as i as i age um, I'm probably less probably less likely to be able to stand up to it physically <laughs> anymore, but uh, but still, uh, yeah, I think it's it's been an important part in driving me in, in in a life of service for sure. Right. Well, one more kind of addition to that concept. Another thing, when I reverse engineer, um, let's say for example, the violence that we're seeing on the streets in the U.S. at the moment, the revert the nucleus of that to me is drug prohibition. You know, making you know yeah. the, the drugs illegal, and that's created so many problems all over the world. When you reverse engineer racism, 
it's not about pigmentation. Again, if you go back to slavery, it's about, once again, power and greed. So when you see some of the things that you've seen in Iraq, Afghanistan, Timor, um, at the root of that, is it, is it a true, like, um, mission for all these people that have this burning desire in their heart to protect their religion? Or do you see, again, fundamentally, that there are people at the top of that tree that are gaining through financial and power? Yeah, look, oh, this, is, this is massive. The definitely power, definitely finance motivates people. I think it, you know, it comes back to me, uh, Psychology 101, I learned very early on in my, my first semester, is individual differences. And what does that mean? Individual differences means different personality, different pathology, psychologically different expressions of how we think and believe. And there's a concept amongst many inside that called cognitive dissonance, which most people are now, uh, I assume, uh, across. But generally it becomes cognitive dissonance is when you hold two conflicting ideas or beliefs or you're presented with two conflicting ideas or beliefs. For example, I am uh, racist, but there's, you know, and I've been brought up as a racist uh, and, you know, and, and this is kind of socialised into you. So in a lot of ways, you're, you are that because you're from or of that. And, um, and I don't always hold uh, that against people because some people just only know what they know. And that goes to my point. And then confronted with overwhelming evidence that it's just rubbish and uh, and even notwithstanding the differences between, you know, kind of the tribal nature of humans, no matter where, where they've been on earth, we, we know about that. Notwithstanding that, those two conflicting positions, what I know are to be true and grown up with and socialised versus what the new evidence that I've been presented with that conflicts with that, humans just want to hang on to what they believe, you know, and, and this is the, this is a, a, a psychological neurological process. Now I'm not a, a, you know, kind of neuroscientist or a neuropsychologist, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no um, guru on the brain, but these things are neurologically, my understanding, hardwired into who we are. And it, 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 it impacts all of us, even on food. You know, people go, oh, "I don't like that food," and you know, and it's and it, and I'm allergic to it. And you know, often behind that, there's no allergy. It's just the kind of narrative you build around yourself because you don't like something. And when you say someone says, "Mate, just try it," and you go, "No, no," I don't, you know, you, even in that moment, that's that's that cognitive dissonance. That's that that moment of where you know something's good for you, but you make a narrative that uh, that, that potentially I'm, I'm not going to do it. I see that with um, with a lot of you – know, I, I, when I was back in the SAS, we started up a high-performance cell, and one of the first things we did was going around to operators and saying, hey, we think you're training wrong. You know, you, you're, you're, you're doing too many push-ups, too many burpees, too many chin-ups. They're not good for you in the long run. And trying to convince an operator that they've been training the wrong way for 20 years, you know, it's it's not a conversation that goes too long. You know, they just pay you off and then you've lost them as a client, so to speak, in times of trying to change their their habits. And we know now that that a, a lot of operators were overtraining for years. I was just too much and um, and not doing any recovery you know if you had a spare five minutes you were on the deck doing push-ups and bench presses or going for a run so you know this this to go back to the original question i think at these higher levels saddam hussein you know probably has psychological kind of 
disorder at some level, uh, not probably, definitely does, but th- these organisations and teams and, and, and individuals are so wedded to their beliefs and what they've brought up that they just won't shift from them from, from a, almost a biological perspective is my understanding. And, um, and uh, you know, I guess when they're so far gone um, that their maladaptive behaviour starts to impact on vulnerable people, which are easy targets, then uh, then it's time for someone to step in. And as I said, I'm more than happy to, to, to join in. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's it's just interesting to hear all these different philosophies, especially when they're international philosophies too. But I've seen it in the fire service. You know, I've seen, I've heard firefighters, we're talking about absolute minority, but, you know, racist firefighters. I had um, the guy who was actually the real the real man in the Black Klansman story. Um, and uh, one of the top members of the clan that he infiltrated was a firefighter. And this guy would risk, risk his life for people of all colors and creeds, but then was a member of the clan. And it's a perfect yeah. example. Like he obviously was raised in an environment where he was led to believe that was normal and couldn't get out of his own way to realize that he was, you know, doing an amazing thing through his profession and clinging on to this ridiculous narrative. Yeah, and I think um, we see it in the military too, and Australia's had its kind of low lights, and we've got some some at the moment uh, in parts of our military, including my own unit or former unit. Um, and you, you know, I guess my message to young operators and instructors in the card, you know, the different schoolhouses in all all uh, all, you know, emergency services, military, etc is we need to train our operators to raise above the politics. Like my father had taught me uh, 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 very early on in my life, and it, it makes a big sense. It makes a lot of sense to me as a mental model. It's just, uh, you know, you should be almost kind of this Aristotle type of figure where you raise yourself head in the clouds above the, the politics and observe rather than um, you know take sides and I think uh, having a broad a broad universal kind of overview is much better and I think that's our our job in in fields of service is not to not to do that and it goes to your mate's point you know he probably rescues all all uh, denominations and people from all walks of life on a daily basis uh, but when kind of cornered on a you know by his community or his his beliefs um they kind of strap himself on yeah exactly well so flipping the coin completely talking about the humanity now tell me the story of the first bat and then again just like when you were a young kid bouncing from from town to town how a sport you started to see unified people no matter where on the planet you were yeah so the first bats um really interesting i had no idea that i'd i would be starting a collection in 2001 uh, 2002 we'd just been um deployed to their global war on terror chasing osama bin laden around the the hills of of the border regions of pakistan and afghanistan and uh, we were sent up to do a job with uh, U.S. Special Forces, with the, the SEALs and and uh, <clears throat> the guys from Fort Bragg. And uh, we uh, uh, we went up to a Asadabad. We were in a little um, compound uh, in the middle of a valley and we were getting attacked most nights. And we were supposed to be out in the border um, watching bad guys come back and forth across the the border smuggling, you know, drugs, guns, money, information, people. 
And um, we didn't end up doing much work at all. We just sat around the compound and had these skirmishes most evenings. And um, a mate of mine said, oh, we, sh- we should have brought a cricket bat or we should fashion a cricket bat. And we had a stick and a, made a bit of a ball and whatnot. And the interpreter, John, said, oh, I'll, I'll go across the border and buy one. So I like to, re- like to think that John, you know, quotation marks. Uh, you mean that wasn't his real name? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it seems there's about a million Johns, you know, throughout the intelligence agency in the US. Um, and uh, he he said, yeah, I'll go across the, to go across the border. So I like to think that the first bat came from from Pakistan, from the federated tri- um, tribal areas where was, uh, um, UBL was hiding out. And um, uh, and John risked his life in a cross-border operation to, to get a bat. And that bat uh, is called the Shahid Afridi bat. Now, US listeners wouldn't know who Shahid Afridi is, but he's um, one of the more notorious cricketers uh, in, on the world stage over the last 30 years. You know, he was caught several times ball tampering on television, you know, which is remarkable because cricket goes to about – Two billion people <laughs> uh, watching him on on television. So uh, Shahid Afridi bat was the very first one. And look, we, we, you know, I, I had a, I didn't really have a, a full grasp of the power of of cricket or what we were what we were kind of unveiling through these cricket matches. But certainly, it brought uh, those games in Asadabad and then beyond on the first deployment. Um, brought the locals together with us and for the first time. And I hadn't really engaged with the locals uh, uh, too, uh, too much up until that point. But I remember that evening, it was a stinking hot uh, Afghani late evening or late afternoon, uh, the mottled shade of the, the, the gum trees, which, uh, you know, you've, another thing that you didn't expect to see in Afghanistan, and, uh, and playing cricket. And then the locals who were working in the compounds coming out and they, they could play cricket. They were wrist spinners. They could put it on a hanky and uh, and they could bat, uh, bat all afternoon. And uh, I, 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 when I was writing the book, I was reflecting on, on um, how in a game of cricket, again, for those who don't know, there's appeals. You know, you, you, you appeal to the umpire for a, for a, for a wicket and, and the umpire has to adjudicate it as being out. And in these appeals, they get quite raucous, like very loud. You know, how's that? And um, people are, are kind of screaming out uh, uh, for an LBW position, uh, uh, decision, for example. And in the afternoons, the, the bad guys are outside the compound getting ready to attack us, you know, skirmish, fire a rocket or shoot some rounds into the compound walls or whatever. And I wondered if they could hear us playing cricket. And I reckon they would have, you know, the laughter and the loud appeals and everything. And I like to reflect back that they heard us, and we were we had one up on them because they were trying to stamp out joy and laughter and 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 uh, and even cricket. And here we were, you know, giving them the the metaphorical middle finger through uh, through playing cricket and and enjoying it. So I hope they were listening, and I hope it fired them up even more, um, because not long after that, there'd be a rocket had hit the compound. A few gunshots, and we'd all rush for our guns and get up on the compound walls and and uh, start uh, calling out target indications. But uh, that that was the first bat, and uh, that was uh, the probably the first uh, first time I realised the bats had this kind of power to 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 do more than just uh, relieve a bit of tension, bring locals together. 
So that was the first one. So kind of walk me through, I mean, I don't have to go through all 11, of course, but some other notable moments, whether it was Iraq, Afghanistan, Timor, where, again, that game brought together people. I know there's one specific example where there were two enemies that signed the, the same bat, but but where that bat became the same kind of symbol as the, the Christmas truce that we saw in World War One. Yeah, I, I guess fast-forwarding to 2005, I suppose the, the remarkable story uh is we, we we're in the cod valley it's absolutely behind enemy lines at that stage northern Arasgan or north of Arasgan, where the australian uh, area of operations were and uh we were our job was up there in the cod valley it was really just to go up there and and probe the enemy and and work out their disposition you know what kind of uh, uh, you know, numbers where they were located where they were communicating from what kind of weapons they were using against us uh, just so we can get some in- intel on 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 the enemy, and it kind of long patrols as a vehicle patrol. I think of around fifty or sixty days. Um, so long, long, um, long range vehicle patrolling, uh, and it's boring. <laughs> like you know, you know, people probably don't want to hear that, but or, or, or wouldn't expect to hear that. Um, but it's pretty boring stuff. You you're. Uh, you're spending days doing nothing, um, you know, fixing vehicles, communicating, reading, eating, sleeping, uh, and uh, and playing cricket. So it's was, it's was something we did to to break the boredom. And one afternoon we were playing cricket, and 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 then in the afternoons again we would go to a village, we'd get into a contact with the enemy, have a skirmish, uh, or sometimes really big gunfights. Um, it would go on for hours. Uh, and and then withdraw back to the middle of the valley at night time uh, outside of gun range. Anyway, one afternoon we're playing cricket and um, the interpreter uh, said, Harry, I think the, the Taliban commanders are watching you play cricket from the hills. You know, they're observing us as we're observing them. And I said, oh, is that right? You know, and he says, yeah, and they, uh, and they reckon you're rubbish cricketers. You know, they were, they were, sl- they were sledging us from the hills <laughs> over the motorola radios. And, and for those people who don't know, you know, the, the enemy commanders and Taliban and al-Qaeda and, the, you know, the anti-coalition forces, they just use basic Motorola radios that you buy online. Um, and then they have their own verbal cues and, and codes that they, that they overlay. Anyway, yeah, so here they are sledging us, some Taliban commander, you know, commenting on our cricket and, and how, how poorly we were playing. And I, I took offence, you know. I said, tell that prick to bloody come down here and, and play us in cricket if he thinks he's so good, you know. So he did. He told him and, and there was this pause, this long pause before they, they kind of got back to him. And, I, and it kind of occurred to me that they, they might have been chatting about it. Well, should we go down there and play, you know, <laughs> actually thinking about it. And for a moment, I, I shit myself because I thought, shit, what if he says, okay, <laughs> well, how do we, how do we orchestrate that? But they didn't. They said, oh, of course we, of course we won't because, you know, if we come out of the hills, you'll bomb us. And of course, we, we absolutely would have. Um, but, uh, you know, I did, we, we said to him, look, if uh, whoever wins the cricket gets to stay in the valley and, um, and uh, whoever uh, loses has to leave. But uh, no, they declined. I, I can't remember if we put it to them, but there was talk about you know uh, you know a punch up, maybe a, a boxing fight or something. Our best man on their best man, and and whoever wins. But uh, so yeah, again, the bats um, bringing two enemies together. Um, uh, probably not to the extent that we saw the kind of you know the winter and Christmas tru- uh, truces in the in the in the uh, in First World War and the trenches. But it's a nice 
you know, even though uh, it's kind of enemy v enemy, and and um, uh, you know, we we would we would uh, kill each other in any other realm. Uh, it's a nice nuance. It's a nice reflection. Uh, and I feel a little closer to that that Taliban commander if I can be clumsy or or, or to use that because uh, through cricket it's a strange uh, mental kind of uh, um, uh, model to to appreciate. And I guess you know other other notable bats. Um, you know every deployment I took the one I took a cricket bat on it. Uh, had the men and women sign that bat at the end of the deployment. Um, you know, there's 11 bats in total, so you know I'll, I'll share an image with you, James, if you if you want to uh, uh, for people to have a look at. And you can imagine at the start of <clears throat> at the start of this period, I got uh, friends have signed them and they've been killed along the way or badly wounded along the way. And there's nothing worse than seeing your mates get hurt. I'm, I know your community would would fully appreciate that. Uh, so that they they grew. As a collection, and around, you know, bat four or five, I started to have a sense that this was a bit more. Um, and in in two thousand and eight, uh, or, or 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 just after that, to in two thousand and six, we went back to Afghanistan, and we're sitting around. We're one of the first call signs on the on the on the ground there, and uh, we're sitting around, and a large explosion went off in a small village near nearby. And we had a small surgical station, one doctor and a couple of nurses and just a couple of uh, tents, really, just to service our 20-odd our individuals. Um, and pretty much you know, within 30 minutes, we were overwhelmed with dozens of dead and dying civilians who have been caught up in this explosion. And we were completely overwhelmed. And it's probably the most traumatic experience of, well, not probably, is definitely the most traumatic experience. So it's mass casualty, you know, uh, you know, a, a dozen people. We triaged a dozen people who were beyond help and dying. Uh, that was actually my job was to 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 just uh, look after the people who were dying. Um, you know, and the rest of the triage played out, and uh, it was you know it was, it was a shocking scene and um, putting lots of people in body bags. And this doctor was just, I remember him walking out into the middle of it. It was like slow motion. He was just looking around. He had his hands on his hips and he's just going, fuck me. Well, yeah, how, how can I deal with this? And the the leadership he showed that day was unbelievable. It's the greatest, single greatest uh, um, uh, piece of leadership I've ever seen ever in any circumstance from whether, and, and he had a, strategic tactical purview he had he was talking and thinking about the impacts on the local community and the broader province as well you know just a, a remarkable uh, human being and and a remarkable um sense of that after that day we we're all sitting around exhausted emotional very very down um very depleted and someone grabbed the bat and said i'm going for a hit grabbed a bat and a ball and there's one or two playing and then slowly almost like a zombie world you know, the operators converged out into the cricket match and uh, I grabbed my – I had a sense something was happening. I grabbed my camera and I've taken taken a bunch of photos and it wasn't long before someone took a wicket, you know, bowled someone out and there was a bit of, hey, you know, and then someone had a minor sledge and then it kind of grew and grew and grew and I was just watching over the next 30 minutes as this game of cricket just unwound all of the tension – diluted all of them, diffused all of the emotions from the day. And uh, that was a really powerful moment for me to understand that, you know, it's novelty. As a psychologist now, I know it's novelty to, to kind of break the tension and, and and whatever that novelty is is not as important as 
actually having people engaged in it. But that game of cricket at that moment just really, uh, I think, in a way, almost was a tonic, a therapy that resolved the whole incident in the moment. And I and I like to think that everyone involved in it that day had a chance to to resolve that uh, that trauma um, in the same. You know, period of daylight, really, and uh, and and it was the first time I realised how powerful cricket can be if you if you use it wisely, I guess. Yeah, well, it's there's so many elements that um, again have come up as common denominators on this this you know the show when it comes to positively dealing with a trauma, whether it's acute trauma, whether it's chronic trauma, obviously the tribalism element. So you've got a group of, you know, people playing together. You've got the outside of nature. You've got the actual, you know, exercise element. And then you've got the humor. Cause I'm sure when you guys were playing, you were probably making fun of each other too. And you know, when you understand the psychology of how comedy down regulates the nervous system, I mean, there's all those things play into that one moment. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, again, I'm no neuroscientist, but, uh, yeah, the, the body kind of seeks moments of, you know, dopamine and oxytocin, you know, those kind of those you know, stress relieving uh, neurochemicals and hormones. And um, and that's that's what I understand and what what is probably at the heart is kind of humor or relaxation um, being able to. But. There's, yeah, there's a great, um, uh, again, I'm very interested in novelty, very interested in distraction, uh, very interested in, in, uh, you know, being someone who probably would have been um, diagnosed with ADHD when I was growing up. Uh, I'm very interested in in the human mind's propensity to want to wander and and be intrigued or um, uh, uh, distracted by novelty, and I think that that kind of plays into it. Now, of course, there's always biological and neurological um, uh, processes behind all of this, um, and uh, you know, I suppose that's probably the next chapter of my life will be doing more of that. Now, it's interesting you said that was the most traumatic event because I know in, in the book and obviously in um, several interviews I listened to, you talk about losing Sean, one of your teammates. Was that other incident harder because when you were with your crew that day, you know, you knew what the mission was, you knew what the risks were, but that other scenario, there were innocents and then the inability to save those innocents made that load even heavier? Yeah, definitely. And I, I remember I was on a, I had about a dozen or more, you know, men and boys essentially who had been at the, the explosion to go back. Actually, I probably should explain very quickly. That explosion, it was a dogfight in Taran Cout, a village called Taran Cout or a town called Taran Cout. And dogfighting is a, a sport and they bet and they, and they do it regularly. And a couple of suicide bombers had walked in and cracked off, you know, explo- uh, detonated themselves, and and um, with uh, with some pretty severe, uh, you know, uh, um, consequences. All everyone huddled in around a, the the dogfight. Um, yeah, I spent that afternoon, morning and afternoon, um, with a you know, particularly a twelve year old boy. I had a son uh, at that stage uh, who wasn't far from from his age, and you know, just feeling so bloody helpless. He had a, a, a terrible head wound. Um, and you can imagine some of the the blast injuries that we were kind of you know just helping people to die really just kind of uh, respite function and uh, so yeah it was the helplessness uh, it was the innocence the vulnerability is just farmers and, and children 
Um, the mother's in the background screaming and crying and and uh, wailing and and you know the, the the kind of I suppose I've always thought you know warfare is just this insane crazy environment and and you know pursuit that humans have I it's just complete insanity I can't think of anything else you know and you just wonder why we do this to ourselves and um uh, let uh, smarter people than me work that out but it certainly was that that sense other you know when in, in terms of killing people watching mates get hurt that's tough but it's reconcilable in 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 the context of what you're doing you know the day we drove uh south from down through Chora Valley when Sean was killed in the in the in in the ambush, um, sitting sitting right beside me and uh, the car I drove I was driving drove over an improvised explosive device which detonated and it killed Sean instantly. We we knew uh, that night we knew the day before that driving through that area that we would get into contact and. Um, you know, it's the hard part for me. It was not so much that Sean had been killed, although there was a great deal of uh, survivor guilt and just guilt in general for being driving the car. You know, I, I should have turned left or right. I've I've relived that last kilometre of uh, of driving in my mind so many times, and I'm at peace with it now. Very, uh, uh, very much at peace with it now. But at the time, it was it was pretty hard to get over. Um, but you can reconcile that inside the context. We're fighting a war. We're looking for the enemy, and we want to engage with them. And 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 people are probably going to uh, are probably going to die, and or are likely going to die or get get hurt. So slight slight you know different things and a different feel. And, and killing enemy and engaging with the enemy uh, is not hard to reconcile. You know, particularly after so many deployments seeing what they do to villages and individuals just without provocation for, for, for kind of, in, you know, um, sinister motives. Um, it's, it's not hard. I, I've, I've, I am happy that I've formed a, a hard callus or a hardened mind for that kind of stuff. Um, it's a good protective factor and long may stay in place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because that's what, the fire service does so law enforcement obviously they see some of that and then you know occasionally they have to take a life but they're they're still proactively um you know often stopping the bully the the predator whatever it is whereas in the fire and ems side we basically show up in the middle of disaster we we're not we're trying to mitigate of course the prevention side is you know the smoke alarms and that kind of thing but when we get there someone's already had their worst day ever and like you said one of the worst things isn't so much the person who, let's say, has died. As you touched on, it's the wailing from the family that really weighs on you. So that's something I've talked about a lot with my own career personally, that that inability to save, that that guilt and that shame of they told me in school if I did A, B, and C, then this person was going to live. You know, And it wasn't, I'm not blaming them, but that's kind of how we're set up for failure sometimes. And then you get into these scenarios and you're like, no, that's not how life works. Sometimes you just can't save them. And you're going to have to carry that the rest of your life. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think the, yeah, the mind can become hardened and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I, I, I guess there'll be psychologists out there that will disagree who might have a more of a psychotherapeutic uh, approach to these things that we must resolve, etc. But I think we build up residue or calluses, uh, you know, kind of mentally, if you like, um, and harden the mind in certain parts. And I don't. I, it's it's a natural defensive mechanism of sorts. 
Um, of course, it's good to reflect and talk. It's a way I've kind of worked my way through, you know, the aftermath of dealing with Sean's death, et cetera. And I, and I fully endorse and still see Sykes today for a performance from a performance perspective, from a preventative perspective, uh, the same way you go to the gym to build resilience. Um, however, I do think that in the context of one's life, there are parts of a hardened mind which are adaptive and and um, and and uh, good for us. I want to say one thing on fire service. You know, my my kind of a emerging thinking and observation about the fire service, and and they hold this in common with um, with uh, emergency medicine, is uh, where whereas police or military, and I'm being very broad here, uh, police and military can get up most days and go, oh, it's probably not much is going to happen. I'm probably going to deal with this or that, you know, a bit of humanitarian work or a bit of, you know, a public interaction or, or, or local interaction. Whereas it seems to me that uh, emergency medicine and fire, you, you're never getting called out to go and, you know, or rarely getting called out just to go and do a, a bit of civil interaction. You know, you're going, you're being called because something, so, you know, there's a super complex problem has occurred and no one else knows what to do and you're being called. So it's it's almost inevitable every single time that bell goes, you know, and again, I'm, I'm a bit of a dumb mind here, naive observer, uh, whether it's a car accident, a fire, a, 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 a civil disaster, mass casualty, uh, that's your end. Um, and I, I wonder about that. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder. I, I look forward to learning more about how um, uh, how that's resolved as teams and as individuals. And my understanding, at least here, my exposure to to in Melbourne, is that it's probably not as sophisticated as it as it could be. Um, but just to finish that, one thing I love, I saw a documentary last year during COVID that was my favourite documentary by a mile. It was by a famous Hollywood actor whose name I can't remember. He talked about, uh, he was uh, talking about the 9-11 and the fire department and some other bits and pieces. He'd grown up inside, the, he'd been a fiery and then went off to Hollywood. And they touched on this notion about cooking in the in the in the uh, firehouse and how that was like a part of a ritual and a routine in fire departments and uh, it's something i'd like to learn more about but that i think that's probably a, a ritual or a habit that occurs in those um firehouses and I'm, i don't know if it happens in yours james is kind of cultural artifact that's some that's probably an area where things are resolved and stories are told and tacit knowledge is transferred and and psychological and mental models are shared for a common kind of language or lexicon, and I think there that that's the part of it that I think is really yeah that really important to to note and to try and teach to try and pass on um, the work I do with the Mission Critical Teams Institute and Dr Preston Klein now is really interested in what those those artifacts are and how how do we ensure the best passage of all of that information and learnings um, and how what what, what what rituals are people using probably unwittingly to, 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 to do that, you know? Yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on. I think it was uh, Steve Buscemi that was in the documentary, the Hollywood That's actor. It. Yeah. I forget the name of it, but it was, it was a great, um, great documentary, but the firehouse table has always been exactly what you're talking about, but we've had some, some uh, challenges. So for example, 
this is for the very best reason some news stations have individual dorm rooms, which I am absolutely a huge fan of because now you're not woken up for calls you don't need to go to. But people tend to go off and hide. You have the cell phones. People stuck, you know, stuck their face in the cell phones. Now what I hear, and I'm transitioned away from the fire department myself too, um, is with COVID. Like these men and women aren't allowed to sit to, sit next to each other at the moment. So all these things are playing against that very thing. And you absolutely nailed it. That is one of the most healing places in a firehouse, whether it's cups of coffee, whether it's actual dinner, is sitting around a dinner table, laughing, making sick, dark humor jokes, drinking copious amounts of coffee, um, and offloading some of the thing, whether you're talking specifically or something completely different. But that is, you know, absolutely one of our strongest coping mechanisms, that and what we call the tailboard, the back of the, the fire vehicle. Yep. Yeah, and, and it plays out in the military too. And I think that there's a metaphorical table for every organisation. You know, if you've got a, if you're a financial hedge fund, you should have, uh, you know, these common areas. I, in the old cricket club, I used to talk about the corner of the bar and the top of the first net run-up. That'll probably only mean that second bit will probably only mean any, something to cricket uh, uh, um, followers. But they are the two most uh, tra- you know, trafficked areas of the club you know you might have a hundred people in a in a in a cricket club and they're they're kind of spiritual domains because so much foot traffic passes around the corner of the bar you know going to the change rooms going to the field or having a beer and at the top of the first net is where everybody stands to watch the best batsman in a club bat and a lot of information is transferred and these are things we, you know, everyone will be sitting there going, yeah, no shit, Harry. The fire, you know, the kitchen's a great place to resolve issues and spread knowledge. You know, we've known that for years. Well, the, the, the bad news or the, the concerning news may be for, for all of us senior guys that we can't take that kind of stuff for granted anymore. Um, what's been norms in the past are being challenged by social media. What, you know, the new operators that are coming through now, are they – less likely to want to be in the kitchen on their, or, or they want to be on their phones or what does fire fighting look like in the future? And we've got to fight really hard now to not only make these observations and make them explicit, but I think we've got to really work. It's one of the things a, a leader, a young leader could do is as soon as you get somewhere or, or recognise that, pull the team in and explain it, explain the importance of it. It's probably not – that's the probably the difference now. And a lot of people won't grow up with that, you know. That the 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 that these these spaces and there's a whole host of other things too that we can we can um, double down on. These they're just more important than ever. Uh, and if we can give people the tools inside those those environments or spaces, for example, um, to then be a bit more sophisticated about how we unpack our extreme experiences, then I think we'll be better off. We'll be evolved. Absolutely. Well, I want to transition to the the book and and your and talk about your actual transition out of the military. But one more area that, again, you were talking to Gaz about, and it really struck me because it's something I didn't think about much when I was in the fire service. But towards the very end, so I forget who it was now, but someone made me kind of think about it, and it's so powerful. Is you talked about punctuating your deployments, and when you came home to your family, you had kind of rules like who could visit at, you know, which times and you slowly kind of um, expanded yourself back into that civilian life. So, you know, where did that come from? And if you wouldn't mind, explain what that looked like and why you did that. 
Yeah, there was a, a period from, well, pretty much the whole of the 2000s where I spent maybe eight or nine months away every year. I remember spending uh, 14 months away in 18 months at one time, probably at peak time away. And I, I, I often say being at home was like being away and being away was like being at home. And I guess coming home, I would uh, – it was just one long deployment punctuated by going home to this foreign place that there was a family there and they lived in a house that I lived in. It was, it, it was a bit surreal at times. James, I'm so lucky to have my wife, Danielle. She, I think, just organically or had a sense for this and and certainly we now, um, you know, uh, uh, educate uh, partners and families on this. But she set up routines and that helped me um, uh, in integrating back into the family. And I, I had a, a strong sense of, of that, family is important but also your social connectivity is really important too so it wasn't long before i was down the cricket club or playing with the band or whatever the case was at that stage but uh, we had rituals um, and these rituals are really important whether they're on a weekly basis a monthly basis or an annual basis and so my wife had some pretty strict rules in place um, you know we always had the same dinner before i left uh, as we did when i came home you know i remember one weekend I was in Kabul tracking down bad guys on a Friday night and on Sunday I was at the dinner table roasting you know, lamb and, and broccoli and mashed spuds, which was the, which was the uh, dinner when, we, when I got home. And that, that conversation, so just think about if we unpack that a little because it seems such a simple thing, but let's unpack it just slightly. So with a week or two to go before you come home, the conversation starts to your wife says, do you want the usual food, the usual return dinner? And she knows I do and I know I do, but it starts the conversation. It starts to taper in the normal you know, reflections of home and longing and yearning, etc. So those, that's one conversation of many that you have. And, um, and so that starts to taper and it prepares you and primes you for coming home and you start to look forward to home. And then you get home and you fulfill that and it's it's something, it's a, an achievement when you get home, if that makes sense. And it, it has a very powerful psychological effect. And if you do enough of those little rituals, that's that's the point of it. And uh, and also, you know, my, my wife never let me see anyone. My, my family were, you know, first 24 hours, 48 hours, stay away. And she was <laughs> pretty firm on that, much to my father's chagrin at times. But um, I, I, I thank her for that. Uh, and it's the same when, whenever I was leaving and sometimes it was only, you know, four or six weeks after that, we're off again, you know, and we get, these are not just going back on deployments uh, to, you know, administrative deployments. These are going, you know, combat in and out, in and out all the time. So I, I have, you know, my wife was always very, uh, very anxious and, and, and uptight, but, um, you know, before we left, uh, we'd start talking a week before she would start talking about it, going, well, what, what are we going to do when you leave? You know, just talking about the practical things leading up. Um, say goodbye to your fan. She'd organise that and, and, and she was just an absolute uh, genius at it. And, uh, and I think they're, they're very, uh, very important routines. And, and in a way, you know, although I've been, you know, it's fair to say I've probably been under the most duress for that period coming home, um, I still have a role to play, and I think that's important too. You know, if you're a father coming home from work, you have your job hasn't finished. You've got some responsibilities before you crack a beer and sit down and have some own time. You know, and you need to get around the camp and 
pat the kids and pat the dog and help the wife and take the rubbish out and not come home and make it all about you. And I think there's there's a little bit of tolerance and education around that for us. And I know we're a lot better at, at that than we than we used to be. I don't know if I've answered your question there, mate, but that's kind of that's that's my reflection. No, you've absolutely nailed the question, actually, because when you think about military, there's a, a very definitive you know time away and a very definitive time back in the first responder professions or let's say er physician or nurse or you know any of these you know dispatcher you have this high stress you know profession where you're seeing the worst of the worst and then sometimes immediately jump in a car and go straight to your family and i think it's very important for our professions too to take that moment whether it's stay at that fire station for 30 minutes you know to yeah. walk around the station, you know, row, just do some yoga, sit there and, and meditate, whatever, but punctuate between I'm there responding to this horrible shit, whether it's a police officer or a firefighter or whatever, and I'm going to walk through and be a dad. And I think that because of the frequency of our shifts, our professions don't think about that punctuation. So I thought when you told that story to Gaz, I needed to pull that from you because obviously the military listening is it's completely pertinent apples to apples. But for us on a more micro level, every single time we come home, we have to understand that we've got to transition from one hat to another. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it applies. The principles uh, remain the same, whether it's uh, you know a, a, a week, a month, or a year, or a day. And you know, and and just means that you don't. You know, but I think. Having that mindset, I'm not a big fan of kind of just mindset as a as a concept. I think you 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 pick from the buffet of mindsets in life, and and you just you, you get used to having a mindset for this, that, and the other, and, and just kind of being adaptive and, and reacting as you go through and, and picking the appropriate ones. And that's the art of enjoying life. I think right right at the core of it. But I I I think I remember that the discussion I had with Gaz was about you know life became one long deployment and then it was punctuated kind of this punctuated equilibrium almost of of going home you know and having to to kind of that was that was the far out bit that was the part that was hard to to get used to but definitely routines uh, I I fully agree some people really enjoy their commutes you know I found out last year working as a psychologist with. Uh, emergency services or front first responders and 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 even with corporates alike there's a there's a whole bunch of people who go i really enjoy my commute it allows me to wind down from work and then when i arrive home i'm kind of i'm, I'm set so i think there's um there's something in that uh and i would encourage everybody to look at their transition moments daily weekly in life with a bit more sophistication i, I find myself using this word all the time we're pretty smart at this end of our evolution or at this period of it. We're still we're evolving. We're not evolved. And uh, I think that's one of the takeaways that we can be a lot more deliberate about life. For so long, all of us, if you think back over your life, it's been pretty passive and default. You've just kind of gone along with it for to a large part, except from, apart from some kind of big goals, you know, join the fire fire. Um, uh, the, the firefighters, join the police, join the bloody um, soldiers or the soldiers, the army. Uh, you know, it's those big hands movements we've probably been deliberate about, but most other things were pretty passive bystanders. So uh, I think in terms of that trans, those transition moments definitely could be more deliberate. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Well, speaking of transition, the very end of the book, you talk about, um, again, another kind of traumatic moment that that you guys had and then you had a kind of aha moment of 
just realizing that physically you had probably peaked and it was time to, you know, to, to transition. The transition out of the professions is something that I see a lot of people struggle with. A lot of us identify as the policeman, the firefighter, the, you know, the operator. Um, and then they, they go into the civilian world, the door closes behind them and they're like, well, shit, you know, that was everything I was. So tell me about kind of the, the events leading up to your decision and then how your own personal journey was um, into what ultimately became psychology. Yeah, I guess I, to, to kind of start with the last point first, I, I had been studying psychology for, you know, 10 years by the time I discharged, which was only a couple of years ago, I discharged in 2019. And, um, you know, a very wise man, a man who's had a massive impact on my life, you know, al- almost similar to my father's impact is a guy named Gary Kingston. And he was, uh, he, he just in conversation, didn't even probably know that he was talking about, it, was just saying, you know, you've got to have something else beyond just being an SAS soldier, you know, and what he was alluding to is that, you know, you might get injured tomorrow and it's all over and don't take your pay for granted and don't take your position for granted. And that was his point. And that kind of filtered through to, through into me, and um, I became, I, you know, I kind of, I, I understood that, you know, I wasn't going to be a, a, a shooter for the rest of my life. I certainly wasn't going to be doing it much past forty, into my forties, which I, I was lucky enough to do. Um, so I had a sense that transition is too late back then, and it's kind of my mantra now. You know, I've got it on. A, I started a foundation a number of years ago that uh, educates soldiers while they're still serving. Not, not at the end of their service, not after they finished. I think, you know, that's one part of it. But we need to start the discussions when they join us. And uh, it's one of the impacts I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to have had on the unit is to say, okay, you've joined us. Here's, how, here's the way we do things. Sign up. Here's your hat. Here's your scroll or whatever. Um, now, let's talk about you leaving the unit. And I think uh, that's that's the first level. The next level, of course, is getting into our instructors and get asking them to have those discussions too. You know, what's your plan B? That, that should be a great discussion that's happening in the schoolhouses. You know, of course, training, joining the fire force, firefighting forces is, is huge privilege and, and it's the it's the end to a lot of guys' dreams and girls' dreams. However, um, you know, being a firefighter is part of you in your, in the terms of your whole life. It's not all of you, and uh, and you need to uh, need to have a plan B or or another part to your life because identity spreads much further. And I think you alluded to it that, that a lot of people who you see that are just kind of welded on to the to the shield, who are welded on to the hat or that whatever whatever artifact it, it, it you know, resembles your service, uh, they probably struggle the most. It's certainly my kind of um, ad hoc observation, uh, that's the case. They struggle to re-identify and integrate. Um, so, yeah, again, I, I always pass on the, you know, top five tips from Harry. One is make sure you've got good civilian contact uh, connect outside of away from away from your your chosen um, service uh, because that's going to that that's one thing that really s- not saved me and well maybe it did I, I um, it 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 certainly saved me from myself having a lot of civilian friends in in cricket and uh, and elsewhere. Um, I guess transition wise uh, with. You know, with we, we'd been on a job. My last my last gig was my last combat gig was in 2012, I think it was, and I was geez, what how old was I then? I was 44 years old, and I'd batted pretty 
deep into my career. I was very lucky. Luck has got so much to do with with uh, with everything. We rarely paid enough um, enough uh, um, note uh, when we when we reflect back, but or enough regard. But um, I was very lucky. But I just couldn't keep up anymore. We we went out on a job. We got into a bit of a, a firefight uh, right up in the north of the province we were working in. Um, we got off the helicopters and we were sprinting. We had to sprint it. We couldn't get in. We couldn't get put in, set down right beside uh, the target where we wanted to, where the bad guys were. Uh, we had to go about 300 metres further. And we got out of the helicopter and started sprinting towards the target. And it's all about speed, obviously, once you hit the ground and keep moving. And I just couldn't keep up. I tripped over, I jumped a wall and went crashing into the floor. And, and uh, you know, I, I was, it was bloody uh, Clouseau-esque, I think, at times. And that was probably the point uh, that I realised that, um, you know, I, I'm just now becoming potentially a, an impedance or, or, a, or a risk to the, to the team. And uh, also, you know, I, I, I was starting to sense that ethically I'd run out of justification and, and this ability to reconcile in my own head. I, I we we later in that that um, contact we were fighting, shooting back and forth into a small village. You know, a couple of guys, bad guys come across the front and we we uh, we killed those. And from inside that that kind of little battle space in there emerged a young child or young boy probably 14 12 or 14 and an old man and they'd both been wounded in the crossfire and uh, and the young boy had been um uh you know not you know badly wounded in the in the head uh, he'd taken a graze and and there were, we could see a bit of brain exposed and the old fellow had uh, been shot through the arm and they'd just probably been cowering in the in the fields and and uh, this uh, huge amount of gun. And I remember there was a moment we were in this battle and and people will will take sides on this and have their opinions. But um, you know where I had this ethical dilemma of do I call the helicopter in to save the child, or do I just plug him up, leave him, and continue on with the battle and um, and defeat the enemy, which is our job, you know. So, so and I was conflicted. I had uh, voices inside the team going, you know, essentially saying, "Don't worry about the kid. Let's fight the fight and save our save our mates and and kill the enemy." But I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I think that was I, so. I called in the helicopter. You know, we put all the risk mitigation we could in place, but you can't, you know, ultimately mitigate for an RPG hitting a, an AME, a, a, a medical evacuation helicopter coming in, and maybe killing the crew. So I, I, but I called it in none, nonetheless, and we we got the kid out of there. And it's not the right answer, you know, it's not the wrong answer, it's not the right answer. But I think that was the point at when I which I went, okay, maybe I'm losing my edge here. And in those environments, seeing so many people killed and mates killed and all the rest of it, you you, you have to maintain that edge. You've got to have that hard edge and and be hardened to these types of things. So I think that combined with a pulled hammy and a bad back and um, you know a, a head only a radio could love. I think uh, uh, the the I'd, I'd reached the limits of my kind of I suppose ethical resilience in a way and um, and felt quite conflicted. So on the way home in the bus, we we pulled into Perth. I remember I, I reflect on it in the in the um, in the book. We were driving from the airport back to back to the barracks, and and my uh, and the two IC turned around to me and said something along the lines of 
you're getting a bit old for this, Harry. I think it's time to hang up the helmet. And I agreed with him. I, I never agreed with him once when we worked together over 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> and and uh, so that, that that was kind of the cessation story, I guess, mate. Beautiful. Well, I mean, it's, it's so powerful. I think the humility to know when the journey is up. And I think sadly, again, in the fire service and police, we've – I think devolved to the point where someone's journey is document is uh, controlled by the pension scheme that they're in, yeah, which I think right. is is such a horrible way of looking at it. You know, I mean, I, I did fourteen years. My my road went all over the place. I found myself at this bizarre crossroads that came out of nowhere. But that was it. Fourteen was the organic end to my actual sitting on a fire engine and being a firefighter. Um, but I think because of that, because it was my choice, because I'd already like you had another. Um, uh, project that was already underway, it was an easy transition. Even though I miss the job itself and I miss, really, I think my ego misses wearing the uniform and doing man stuff. You know, the the mission has stayed the same. The same with you. I mean, you're making people better and you're saving lives in, in a different lens now. But I think that that is something that people struggle with a lot. So having the humility especially hearing from someone that you don't normally agree with to say, yeah. yeah, you're right. You know, I think this is, this is where not it ends, but this is where I turn the page in the book of my own life and, and transition to a new chapter, I think is very powerful to hear. Yeah, definitely. And it's one thing. So you know, it, it inspired me, I guess, to start the Wanderers education program, uh, which I'm glad to, to say, you know, that was around 2015, and that's going great guns at the moment. And um, that conversation is essentially about, you know, all that that program is about offering uh, young operators past a, a you know an obligatory period of service of of, of three or so years, um, offering them any education on any terms, whatever they want to study, wherever they want to study, however they want to study. Um, it's paced so they don't bite off too much and they're distracted completely from it. But that starts deep in their career. And and what's that designed to? A lot of a lot of guys, guys have gone back and finished year 10 and 12, which is brilliant. I love it. That's that's probably the thing I love the most. Other guys go and do start MBAs. They get halfway through the MBA and go, you know what, this isn't for me. What a great what a great thing. It's not failing. It's not uh, wasting money. It's actually really value adding uh, to find things you don't want to do. You know, so it's it's actually a great process. So I I, uh, I I think that that is a huge part of the you know treating of you know people like us, James, who've uh, had traumatic and extreme experiences. I think it's a massive part of the miss, or maybe even the missing you know part, one of the missing parts to treating. Or helping people trans transition, and transitions a bit of a, I think I think it's more I like prefer the word transformation because I think that's that uh, that's a, a much more aligned with um, you know still maintaining some some of the skills and just transforming to a new new way of uh, expressing those skills as you've alluded to. Beautiful, yeah, I like that word a lot. Well, speaking of transforming, you transformed into an author, so let's talk about that. What made you decide to write the book and then what level of catharsis did you find from digging deep into your mind and actually putting your story on paper yeah huge uh brilliant i love it i want to do it again and um i can see why people kind of get addicted to to writing um i so i've always been a journaler i've got a box just sitting down here in the cupboard um to my right here 
uh, with several big boxes of journals going back to year 12. And, you know, some of them are yearly diaries, others are just little notebooks as piles of paper, um, typing, scribblings, etc. So I've always been a journaler and I under, I've, I've understood particularly through psychology now, the power of writing and reflecting, using writing, because you know, we don't, we've got no idea how we think. We've got no idea how, what, how we think translates into words, like that process of linguistics. There's, you know, there's, the biggest brains on the planet have still, can, will still hear them say, we don't really understand it. Um, but one way we can make sense of thinking and talking and whatever's happening in between, the space in between, is through writing and reading, et cetera. So it's a no-brainer. And I, I, I find journaling um, has been a, a really nice way to resolve and to move on and to learn lessons, et cetera. I didn't really know that that was what was happening, but um, when I got to the end of my career, I, I, I was uh, you know, I still in the unit. I was working in our in our kind of performance cell and and working on you know physiology and psychology and sociology and philosophy and and really uh, I was in a lovely spot. I was doing what I wanted to do, but I had this sense that I needed to go away and write and do the biggest journal ever, and it was pretty much that simple. So I took a I took a room in a in a pub in in um, in Wargrave in the Thames Valley in the UK, uh, just down the road from Henley on Thames. And uh, this beautiful little village with a with the pub, the bull. Um, and every morning I got up and wrote. And I remember when I was googling writing a book or or, or writing memoir because that's what I, I, I set out to do, just to to write a massive journal. And no no intention of turning it into a book at that stage. You know these great authors like Orwell and 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 and, and Dickens and others. You know reading what their lessons learned. What, the theme amongst all of them, men and women, great authors was to uh, assess you have the discipline, to create discipline to write, to be able to get up every day and write three to 5,000 words. That was what I had in my mind from reading just a you know, half-hour Google of, <laughs> of uh, lessons learned from writers. And so I thought I'll, I'll go and do that, and I proved to myself I think that I could do it. But I just sat there and wrote stories, and I'd go for a walk through the English countryside every morning with a with a, you know, a, a um, dictaphone and, you know, I think really well when I walk. So I'd, I'd say, you know, just note down all the stories and, and just a quick, you know, bullet point of each story. And then I'd come back that morning and write the stories, you know, 1,500 word average uh, stories. And I ended up with about 70 <clears throat> different stories and, and I've got plenty, plenty more that didn't get into the book. And I came back with about 150 plus thousand words um, edited. I, 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 I took time. I should also say that during that period, I watched uh, all five tests of the uh, the um, Ashes Australia v England, which is the biggest sporting contest on the planet for mine. And when I got back in 20, uh, 2016 from England, uh, I I put it in a bottom drawer. I didn't didn't even worry about it until. Uh, my bats went on the actual physical collection of the 11 bats went on display in our shrine of remembrance here which is a war shrine a shrine to the great war in melbourne beautiful uh a beautiful building um and uh a couple of publishers rang me up and said oh are you interested in <clears throat> writing a book about your 11 bats and i went uh possibly but you know not now and not with you because i i just i didn't rate them to be honest when i met them so uh 
But then I met I met the the current publishers, which are Alan and Um and uh, Tom Gilliatt and Malcolm Knox, who ended up being my, the uh, the editor and helped me build the book and and um, uh, edit it to what it is today. Uh, they were wonderful and uh, got it and got that I didn't want to write a tell all SAS story and I didn't want to get dragged down into you know the the kind of um, the 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 secret squirrel stuff. I just wanted to write a, a bloke's book and and. Um, and last year during COVID, I basically sat, you know, in lockdown and, and edited the book. I think I rewrote it maybe six times by the end, five or six times, um, which I, I loved as well. I really enjoyed, and I look forward to making some more time to to do another one. God knows what it'll be on or whether it'll be any good, but um, yeah, it was a great process. I encourage everybody to to write. It's um, cathartic, therapeutic for all of us. Beautiful. I love hearing that. I uh, I wrote a book myself in in 2020. Same thing. It was right before COVID happened. I won't you know, harp on that because I want to focus on yours. But again, the, the the things that it pulled out of my brain, the catharsis element, and then just that sense of achievement. Like I wrote a book. I mean, that, that in itself is amazing. But what I loved about yours was... I read a lot of biographies because obviously I have a lot of guests. So, you know, it's very rare that it's a fiction writer. Um, and... So I am exposed to a lot of writing styles. Obviously, there's a lot of ghostwriters with some, but yours is just a very easy read. And I mean that in a, in a, in a positive, you know, complimentary way. But also with that theme of the bats, with the theme of the, you know, the psychology embedded in the leadership, it's not a leadership book. It's, you know, it's the stories, but there's so much to pull out organically that, uh, I thought it was incredible. And I read it on Kindle and I hate reading on Kindle, but that's the only way I could get it here. Um, but it, it totally sucked me in. So. Kudos for you for writing a book, making me, you know, drawing me in on a, on a device that I don't normally like reading on at all. So it was it was amazing. So for people listening, then how can they get the book? You know, depending on where they are in the world. Yeah, I think um, I think well for here in Australia, it's still on sale in in the bookstore. So that's I'm, I'm glad for that. It's going okay, uh, and I it's a, available on Amazon. I think to to ship into the US. Few people have done that. We've shipped a bunch in. You can get it on um, um, audio, audible, or on audio books. Uh, I've had varying reflections back on that, um, but we 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 we've got a uh, distributor in the UK, and in July we'll launch the book kind of physically, if you like. I'm, I've got my fingers optimistically crossed that I'll be able to get to the UK in July, August. Um, I'm going to take advantage of our vaccine here for essential workers being a psychologist and um try and get across but there's some other things <clears throat> some other things I want to work on in the uk too with uh, the mission critical team institute so we'll see how we go and then the us uh hopefully uh next winter um uh, i've got a couple of toeholds up in the northeast um uh to uh, have the book distributed there as well so i'd love look and look you don't make a million dollars out of a book that's for sure i think one Zero zero point one percent of people actually make you know a living out of writing, um, and I don't expect I'll be one of those. But it's just a bit of a thrill, isn't it, James? I mean, you've written one, and it's just such a, as you said, it's a a, a, a great thing to do, great thing to achieve, uh, really satisfying thing. So I'd like to. I'm a, I'm a bit. I'm a, I'm a real journeyman. I'm not really interested in the book once it's out and it's on the table. I've kind of lose lose its flavour. But I love the journeys and I love all of the 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 kind of nebula that happens in and around writing a book. You know, I, I love meeting people and I love talking about the bats. So we're going to pack up the bats and bring them up to Pennsylvania and um, 
and put them out on display and tell some yarns there. The same in the UK. I'm I'm absolutely laser like focused on getting to the long room at the um, at Lords uh, to uh, to get the bats out on display there. I'll, I'll uh, that'll be my biggest special ops mission uh, ever. So uh, and I and failure is not an option with that one. So. Uh, just going to have a lot of fun with it and um, uh, continue seeing how far we can stretch this <laughs> this journey. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's I mean, there's such a, like I said, a, a interesting and unique story. And I'm actually, I had my vaccine done the other day. I, I got the first one. Um, we're down to f- over 40. You don't even have to be a responder here, which is, which is great because uh, I qualified as, as a responder, but I don't function in that capacity professionally. So I didn't want to kind of jump the line. Um, so I guess I'm technically a libtard now because I had it done if we're choosing size that we talked about earlier. <laughs> Cause of course vaccination is political. No, but, but joking apart, you know, I got it done because I want to be able to travel. So I'm hoping to be in the UK. I was hoping in June. I don't know if that's optimistic, but if I find myself in there in July or August, I will come and buy a paper copy so I can have the preferred, preferred, uh, version myself. But yeah, I mean, I, I highly recommend it. Definitely catch up for a pint, mate. That's uh, that's that's uh, mandatory. Absolutely. Well, I did some quick closing questions for you. I know you've got another video conference coming up very soon. We talked about your book. Are there any books written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today, or something completely unrelated. Uh, well, I'm reading at the moment some pretty boring um, uh, text, uh, academic text. Of uh, text, I've gone back to a book called The Handbook of Embodied Cognition. So, I'm not sure that that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna fly too well <clears throat> with um, with a lot of people listening because it's very academic. It's just a bunch of academic papers. But embodied cognition is something I'm I'm fascinated fascinated by at the moment. Um, creativity and novelty I've already mentioned. And I think it's – I actually think it's uh, going to play – it'll be the next wave of self-help kind of, you know, fl- wank words, if you like, <laughs> uh, we'll be flooded with. I've got to say, I don't read many uh, self-help books. I mean, if they haven't got me inside 50 pages, uh, they're done, and I've got a stack of them downstairs. I've actually – you know, I often – wonder about putting a, a post somewhere saying these are all the books I that I don't want to read because <laughs> they just it just does my head in a bit um th- I'm just looking across here the, the stack I've done recently uh and uh, just give me two seconds I guess if I'm gonna if I'm gonna pull one or two out I'd have to say I've got my laws of cricket here that's that's worth reading for all uh cricket enthusiasts um, but the two, I'll, pu- I'll pull two out. I think one is, I, I, I think one of the great books on on organisational culture, leadership, and understanding human teams is on natural selection by Charles Darwin. It's it's I've got I've, it's dog-eared and notes all through it. it it's just catches you unaware. And the, my favourite book of all time is, um, uh, oh yeah, I'll call it. I was only sixteen by uh, Roland. Uh, uh, Griffiths Marsh. Uh, it's a great war story, but um, it's a guy joined up when he was 16 years old. But you talk about kind of stories about leadership and psychology and and life interwoven into biographies. This is uh, absolute master uh, narrative and story, and he holds no punches either. Um, so. Recent recent reads or rereads, they're probably they're probably two. I uh, also love Nassim Taleb's Anti Fragile, uh, one of my favourite books. 
um, Aurelius, yeah, the meditations kind of it's a, a favorite. I know probably everybody's everybody likes that. Um, so yeah, I'll leave it at that, mate. I'll start to sound like a book wanker after a while, but. <laughs> I'm a bit terrible because I, I people go, oh, have you read? You know, Range is a book that's come out recently, and and um, you know, um, Flow and all these other things. And I, 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 I don't know. It's never really kind of uh, captured me the, the kind of self help type of books. Um, I, I'm a big fan of uh, nonfiction. Uh, sorry, of fiction because I think. You know, when when um, when a self help or a psychologist gives you a concept, you're just passively consuming that concept and you're trying to remember it that's what we're all trying to do can i remember it can i apply it blah 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 whereas when you read charles dickens great expectations which is just one of the most wonderful stories of all time and it's the it's the age-old story it's the homeric type of story it's the you know kind of you know these traditional um stories from the past the, the, the redemption and homecoming and all this type of stuff overcoming adversity when dickens talks you need to make up all those images in your head the glass factories of of 18th century 17th 18th century um or, uh britain and uh or england and 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 uh the the fields of kent in the summer and the nights on the Thames River that you need to make those up because you weren't there. You don't know the period clothing, the smells, the food, the mead, everything. And I think psychologically that expands your mind more than a book on mindset or flow or whatever that will. And I can guarantee you this, or I'll put my guarantee on it anyway, that Dickens will long outlast flow or growth mindset or anything like that. And not, nothing against Carol Dweck. I've, I've read it's a great book and the study is fantastic and it's our best understanding at this point. Uh, but Dickens will be along. There's a lot more lessons for me and a lot more grain, brain development in, uh, in Dickens. So I think I've bullshitted on enough now. Now I do sound like a book wanker. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think the, that's what I see a common denominator with podcasts too. I think that's why they're so um, popular now is someone tells a story so it's the same thing like we don't know the the you know the 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 landscape of what you saw smelled you know all these things in in your stories but we start to get a sense of that and we start to build that in our own minds versus as you said almost like a textbook style here's how to insert whatever it loses me, you know, and, you know, I, that's why I don't even like podcasts with one person talking. I like the conversation, even if it's just, you know, some short questions being asked because it engages you and you're creating an entire, um, you know, uh, environment between those two people then. 100%. Yeah, I agree, mate. Yeah, and anything that promotes that kind of different thinking and different parts of the brain challenging you, whether it's challenging you to create a scene or challenging you on your beliefs or um, I think is, is a good thing. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned um, Steve Buscemi's documentary. Are there any other films or documentaries that you've loved recently or a long time ago? Uh, yeah, I probably got sucked into Jordan's um, uh, a documentary. What was that one called? Last Dance or The Big Dance. Last I, I, Dance, I, yeah. Last Dance, I, I, I loved that. I've got to say, I'm not much of a, 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 a TV watcher, to be honest. I, I, I listen to a lot of stuff. I've, I'm, I'm enjoying Andrew Huberman at the moment. Uh, I like uh, Noam Chomsky's non-political stuff, you know, on linguistics and, and the way the brain works. Um, I love uh, – I, I went through a phase of Christopher Hitchens 
and um, uh, just I, I like him as an orator. Yeah, but I, I probably television and and uh, podcasts, etc. I probably probably choose reading more than than both. Um, and uh, but I, I will give away. So I, I love, and it's in the book. I love Midsummer Murders. It's a it's been my wife and my thing forever and she used to say i get you for an hour a week so we'll watch midsummer you're going to watch midsummer and i've just grown to love it i love the english countryside so uh, i'm going to fess up and and be vulnerable as they say and uh, say probably if i've sat down for some mindless relaxation to to recover uh that's probably what we chuck on together and, and watch together beautiful well you mentioned andrew huberman that's someone i've been trying to get on the show i think his his understanding of sleep and performance, I think, would be really valuable here. So I'll keep plugging away at him. Yeah, I like um, Rhonda Patrick as well in that same vein. Uh, uh, I'm intrigued by far. I'm a faster now, and 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 uh, and I love saunas. I'm I'm in them every other day. So uh, I I think they're the two things I've discovered like late in life. I wish I had of had a better grip on uh, early when I was training. I was like all of us obsessed with. You know, body composition and 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 trying to grow big, and I realised very late in my, you know, that uh, there's you, you, that skinny's good. It's just the hard mind that you need, and and the rest of the body will do as it's told. Absolutely, I've I've worked out, you know, for a majority of my life, and my body has stayed at 168 pounds no matter what I do. So you know, the the, the stronger I can be at 168 pounds, the more supple I can be, the have more endurance. That's what matters, not what I look like in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, we mentioned you know those those two, and um, I would love to get them both on. I actually got a mutual friend of uh, or a mutual gym member, I guess, of um, Rhonda Patrick. So I'm hoping I can get her. Is there anyone that you can think of that would be a great guest to come on this podcast to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah. Well, I'd probably point to Dr. Preston Klein if you haven't already thought about him, James. Uh, he's my number one mentor in the world uh, and he's just got a beautiful mind you know it's not always understandable immediately uh, but I, I love the way he thinks and I love the fresh eyes he's bringing to our community and I, and I mean our community military first responders emergency medicine etc um, somehow he's managed to get buy-in and credibility in a domains where you know our communities are very fickle they don't let just anyone wander in and tell us what to do and somehow uh he's uh yeah he's he's managed to do it and it's a full credit to him another guy i i really love at the moment and just loving watch uh grow and develop um as a man and a husband and and an academic is a guy by the name of danny cooper um who i think uh, would 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 you benefit from? He's he's doing uh, a PhD at the moment in Queensland um, in the domain of emergency services and and uh, martial skills and decision making under pressure. And he's he's kind of going through it and putting some um, you know some physiology and biological evidence to it um, in an, in an area that's you know not void of that type of stuff. But there's a lot of chatter out there in books and stuff like that, and, and, etc around um around decision making under pressure and he is an ex-operator i just love seeing ex-operators do that kind of stuff you know bridge the gap often a lot of programs i see it in elite sports you'll have the scientists saying this is what you need to do and the operator or the sports person saying no i always done it like this and this is what's got me got so far 
often what the mission critical team can do is bring an individual insert them in the middle and translate that so it's so it's so it's translatable and understandable from both this is what the sports person means to the academic and this is what the academic means to the sports person or the operator and i think um danny's uh you know he's at the forefront of a wave of operators who are coming through now that are that are legitimate um academic so I can help you catch up with him, and and uh, he's he's a ripping bloke. I think he's he's was going to do the Iditarod Trail one thousand um, this year, but uh, it's been been postponed or last year I think it's been postponed to this year. So he, he knows a bit of thing or two about long duration effort and endurance and resilience. So beautiful, two great suggestions. So thank you. I'd love to get them both on. All right. Well, the last question before we make sure people know where to find you: What do you do to decompress? Uh, I, I do a lot of sitting around and reading or, or relaxing. I think it's, yeah, it's one big lesson I've learned is I probably didn't pay enough attention to recovery when I was, uh, when I was, um, coming through. I'm only 36. Look what it's done to me, mate. You know? <laughs> but, uh, I'm no, only 24. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> seriously. Yeah, it really is. I, I, I try to deliberately embed Downtime. I mean, I, I love saunas, uh, and and uh, you know, I love uh, eating with my family and doing kind of those things. I feel like I've got to catch up. I've got this anxiety about missing out on so much. Um, I love I love training. I don't train near as hard as I used to. You know, fo- chasing a football around the oval with my dogs probably my favourite exercise. I do that a few times a week. I still left. I still lift. Uh, I think, um, you know, being strength and strong bones and muscles are really important. So I still do that a couple of times a week and I train a lot. But I, I actually just say to myself deliberately once a day, go and lay on the couch, read a book, have put on a pod, just do something kind of no pressure or, or, or even just go and have a nap or lay down and think. Um, you know, I, I haven't discovered meditation or mindfulness yet. But a lot of my peers and people I respect, I, I hear more and more of them saying, "Fuck! I wish I had did. Me- I wish I'd have done meditation, you know, earlier in my life." So I, I feel myself kind of getting sucked into that. But um, my ADHD just kind of bristles at doing absolutely nothing with your eyes closed. So I'll have to, I'll have to grip myself up and get get into that. Well, one thing I've found is I'm the same. I'm fidgety as hell, but the uh, app Headspace is really, really good. And they, they start, I, mean, I think you can make it even shorter, but 10 minutes is a good kind of benchmark. But the Andy Puddicum, who's actually on the podcast too, he, he talks you through and, you know, before you know it, you're, you're done. And it really does have that knock on effect to kind of just, just shutting off that monkey mind. And if you've got a fidgety body, you probably got a fidgety mind. I know I do. So it's a good way of kind of, you know, getting, getting some of that white noise out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that'll be the next step, mate. But for now, I, uh, I'm pretty happy pretty happy with how things are tracking, so it's good. Beautiful. Well, the very last thing then, if people want to learn more about you, find you online, find your business, reach out to you, where are the best places online to do that? Uh, well, probably LinkedIn, just Harry Moffat. Uh, we've also the business uh, Stoughton Group. Which is just a consultancy firm, which we're evolving. You know, it's, uh, we uh, we we've, we're still finding out what we're good at and what we enjoy. So we're in the formative years of the business, Stoughton Group. Um, uh, they're probably the two main places, mate. I think there's a bunch of our, our marketing and PR people have put a whole bunch of images and whatnot of my ugly 
dial on on the on the net. So I don't think it's too hard to find. But um, yeah, that's probably the, the two best places. Beautiful. Well, Harry, I just want to say thank you so much. I know I got to let you go. You got another engagement coming up very soon, but I knew this was gonna. I mean, we just got through two hours, and it seemed like a blink of an eye, and we barely scratched the surface of your your story. But you wrote an amazing book. I urge everyone listening to to buy it and read it. But um, again, here you have the, an elite operator talking about the human being behind the uniform. I think that's what's so important. Our psychology, our, you know, vulnerability, the 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 bar that needs to be set, you know, training wise and physically. So just thank you so much for taking two hours and reaching out to the audience today. No, thank you, James. And uh and it's a great podcast, mate. And I take my hat off to you and and uh helping we're you're helping a lot of people um kind of evolve and develop themselves inside these really important populations. So thanks to you as well. Thanks for your service.